Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today, I'm joined by Donald Hoffman, a professor of cognitive sciences at the University of California, Irvine. The title of his recent book is The Case Against Reality. Professor Donald Hoffman, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much. And thank you for your kind invitation, Dr. Akhtar. Before we look into the theory and the ideas that you present about the nature of reality and consciousness, let us recap that how our present understanding of the hard problem of consciousness emerged and evolved over time. Well, I'm sure that people have thought about this for thousands of years. I'm, you know, even Plato's allegory of the cave is sort of a hinting at this kind of thing. Uh, but in more modern times, I would say, you know, Leibniz in his monadology actually addressed this problem very, very clearly and, and argued that a mechanical foundation for a theory of consciousness would never work, which is why he then went after what he called monads to try to come up with a non-mechanical uh, understanding of what, what we would call consciousness and conscious interactions. So, so Leibniz actually clearly understood the hard problem and asserted in the monadology that uh, it, it was impossible to solve if you started with physicalist um, m- mechanical systems as, as your founding point, uh, as your starting point. And, you know, of course, <clears throat> every scientific theory has assumptions. We call them the assumptions of the theory. And you know, we, we have to ask our listeners to grant those assumptions and if they grant those assumptions, then we offer that we will explain all these other things in terms of those assumptions. And so Leibniz was saying, if you start with the assumption of some kind of mechanical system, physical mechanical system, he, he felt that you would never understand consciousness or explain consciousness on that framework. Um, <clears throat> and we've been trying. Uh, when I was a graduate student, um, in what's now the Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department and also Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT, we were studying perception, but we it was not really proper to study consciousness. We so you you couldn't use the C word. Um, and that was from you know 1979 to 1983. I was there, but uh, ten years later it was fine because Francis Crick said it was fine. And when Francis Crick said we need to study this problem, then then it became you know respectable to study it. And so the modern study has really happened since the 1980s. Of course, now in philosophy of mind, the philosophers of mind would take exception to what I've just said and say, look, we've been looking at this thing for for centuries, you know, you scientists. So so, uh, granted, philosophers of mind have been thinking about these things for a long, long time. But I'm talking now about the scientific um, study of it really took off, say, in the late 70s or or 80s, and then picked up when Francis Crick said, uh, we really need to study this thing. So 99% of my um, colleagues who are studying this are still doing what Leibniz said we can't do. They're still saying we need to start with some mechanical system. Usually it's a neural system, which is probabilistic, but nevertheless mechanical. And so the assumption is that space and time and physical objects inside space and time are the fundamental nature of reality. It's what you might call a naturalistic assumption. They, they call that naturalism. Uh, we can go into what I think naturalism really is, but, but, but 
Typically, naturalism is viewed as you have to be a physicalist. Space and time and particles are fundamental. And of course, neurons are complicated systems of particles and systems of neurons interacting together somehow are creating um, all of our perceptions, all of our uh, motions, all of our cognition and all of our conscious experiences. Now, what aspect of that is actually doing the work varies from theory to theory. And, you know, uh, so Hameroff and Penrose have suggested that there's something special about quantum states and microtubules of, of neurons and that gravity somehow collapsing the, the, the states of, of uh, certain electrons um, in there somehow, because that's non-computational and, and consciousness may not be computational, that somehow may be related to to consciousness. <clears throat> uh, uh, you know, I have great respect for um, Penrose. I mean, he's a he's a, a, a world class physicist and, and recently now a Nobel Prize winner. And his work on gravity is is stunning. Um, and of course, when he talks about um, computation and uh, Gödel's theorem, he knows what he's talking about and, and so forth. I, I but I still don't think that this. Um, the approach that he has on microtubules um, really explains consciousness in the following sense. I, my attitude about any of my colleagues taking a physicalist approach is, okay, so you're, you're starting with space and time and physical objects and, and, you know, neurons and their properties. And you're claiming that from that, you're going to explain consciousness. So, Okay, I mean, no one told you you had to do that, but you've decided that that's what you want to do. That's perfectly fine, and I'll be very, very happy to see you succeed. But, but here's what I would want before I said you succeeded. I would like to start with whatever you're starting. Particles, neurons, microtubule, quantum collapses, um, integrated information, uh, what, what, whatever, whatever it is, um, a broadcast network, um, um, whatever that might be. And I want you to tell me exactly why a, one, all I need is one to begin with one specific conscious experience, like the taste of chocolate. I want to know precisely what microtubule collapse or what integrated information system or what broadcast system precisely gives me the taste of chocolate, why that system could not be the smell of, um, you know, a rose. And I want a principled understanding of that. Until we have that, um, good you know, good luck to them. I mean, they're they're brilliant people. Many of them are my good friends. So so good luck to them. But that's what I want before I would say that you've given me a scientific theory. That that's a physicalist theory, and there's nothing on the table. There's not one single. So here's the state of play. Brilliant people have been for many many decades working full time on this. There's not one single specific conscious experience that we can account for in a principal way where we say this computation, if you're a computationalist, this microtubule collapse is precisely the kind of microtubule collapse that must be the taste of chocolate. It could not be something else. And if you made these changes, all of a sudden that would now be the taste of vanilla. That's what I want to see. Um, until then, um, I, I, you know, good luck. So, so that's, and that's the hard problem. We, we call it hard because we're, we're talking brilliant people, good friends of mine, Nobel Prize winners, working very, very hard on this and, uh, you know, working within the framework that has done science so well for centuries, namely 
space-time is fundamental, the contents of space-time are fundamental, and reductionism um, is the, the way to go. Go to the smallest scale, you find the fundamental laws, and from that you can build up everything. And so, so that's, that's the hard problem, and that's what I would require before I was happy um, by a, a proffered solution. And, and again, no one's forcing anybody to make those assumptions that space-time is fundamental, but that's what everybody, I would say 99% of my colleagues are, are doing, and, and for good reason, because uh, that's worked for almost everything else. You say that main scientific theories, and you mention Einstein's theory, you mention quantum mechanics, and you mention the theory of natural selection. You say that all these theories inform us that our present approach of trying to understand reality is not working. Now, I want to understand this this little bit that where you say that they inform us that it is not working. Uh, uh, how do you get to that conclusion? Yes, what, what's really nice about scientific theories is that they're precise enough to tell you where they stop. They tell you their limitations. That's really one of the best things about science. Before science, we had quasi-theories, but, but you could always bob and weave and, and move around and dodge you know, when people were trying to point out problems. With our scientific theories, they tell you where, where they stop. And so, for example, <clears throat> um, in physics... If you want to measure something at a smaller and smaller scale, down to some size delta x, you can, in principle, do that. Um, you need um, energy one over approximately one over delta x to, to do that. It, when you're using um, natural units for Planck's constant and and speed of light. So, so in principle, if if you lived in a world without gravity, you could do that. You could go to as small a scale as you wanted and there would be no problem. But in a world with gravity, reductionism is false. Because as you get down to about 10 to the minus 43 centimeters, and I'm sorry, 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and 10 to the minus 43 seconds, um, as you, you start to probe that small, the energy required is concentrates so much energy in a small area that you create a black hole. And as you try to harder and harder to, to look smaller and smaller, you put more energy in the black hole just gets bigger and bigger. So, so we, we know that it's not true that as you go to smaller and smaller scales, you will find the, the finer and, and finer, the more fundamental rules of, of life at some point, And it's ver not very far. I'm, I'm not saying 10 to the minus, well, you know, 50 quadrillion centimeters, only 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. So, you know, very, very, very quickly, the 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, reductionism just fails. It, it flat out fails. So, so the very notion of space-time, as many physicists now say, for example, Nima Arkani Hamed, and, and David Gross has said this, and, and others, um, space-time is doomed. The idea that space-time is fundamental reality has been a wonderful framework for several centuries now of physics, physics has been about what happens in space-time. That's what physics has been. And now physicists the, uh, at the avant-garde are, are saying, okay, what is physics about now? Because it's not about what's happening in space-time. It's, it's about something deeper. And they're looking for these deeper structures beyond space-time. Right now, they're finding mathematical structures quite successfully. 
Um, but what those structures are about is people are scratching their heads. So there's these wonderful structures. They have symmetries that are true of the scattering amplitude data. That's, that's incredible. They make the comp computations so much easier than if you do them in quantum field theory and space-time. Scattering amplitudes that are hundreds of pages of algebra when you do it in space-time are, you can write them on a few lines by hand um, uh, if you let go of space-time and go to these deeper structures with deeper symmetries. So that's, that's one, one big science that's telling us space-time is not fundamental and also that reductionism is dead. Now, evolution by natural selection is another one. And what's striking there is the way most people think about evolution, the way that Darwin thought about it is, you know, there is a real physical world out there in space and time, and there are real organisms that really fight and that really die, and they really, they really eat physical stuff and so forth. That's the way we typically think about it. But Darwin didn't write down a mathematical theory. And it wasn't until the 1970s that, that John Maynard Smith really, really captured the heart of Darwin's algorithm in something called evolutionary game theory and in the more recently evolutionary graph theory. And when you, when you do that, when you capture the mathematical core of the theory, you take what's essential to the theory and, and, and put that in your mathematical algorithm. And then you leave the inessentials there, you know, they're, they're, they just turn out not to be essential to the heart of the of the theory. So when you do that, you just have essentially the notion of strategies instead of organisms. So you have strategies, um, and you have fitness payoff functions instead of just real life and death and you know getting hit on the head and so forth. Yeah, yeah more abstract thing. So payoff functions and strategies competing for payoffs with these payoff functions. So so when you go to that level of abstraction, you can then use the theory of evolution by natural selection to go back and ask. What about the kinds of ideas that we typically had, that the physical world is fundamental, that or physical organisms and, and so forth is the real nature of reality? Could you actually use the theory of evolution to ask whether those assumptions are true? Well, it turns out, surprisingly, yes, you can use the theory to do that because you can ask a simple technical question. What is the probability that sensory systems evolved to present true facts about objective reality? Hmm. Clean question. What is the probability? And surprisingly, um, the answer is the probability is zero. Uh, and one way to think about it is that these payoff functions um, <clears throat> are functions whose domain includes whatever objective reality is. So, yeah, they depend, whatever objective reality might be, the payoff function depends on the state of objective reality. Absolutely. But also on the state of the organism um, and its competitors and its actions. So, so we can write down now all possible fitness payoff functions on, on whatever reality is, cross organisms, states, and the actions. And we can ask a simple technical question. Um, Whatever structure reality might have, and you can propose different structures. Maybe it has a total order. Maybe it has some kind of topology. Maybe it has some kind of metrical structure, whatever it might be. Um, what is the probability that a generically chosen payoff function would preserve that structure? Mathematicians call these homomorphisms. 
what is the probability that a, a randomly chosen payoff function is a homomorphism of whatever structure you want? And evolutionary theory by itself does not require, there's nothing in the theory that says these things must be homomorphisms, right? It just says there are payoff functions. It doesn't say they must be homomorphisms of reality. It just says there are various payoff functions. And the only place where the theory requires a homomorphism is on so-called measurable structures. So with measurable structures, you need that because otherwise you couldn't do science. If the probabilities in objective reality are unrelated to the probabilities that we can measure, science is not possible. So we do need that, that whatever measurable structures, or there's some generalizations of measurable structures to sigma additive classes, and, and even perhaps using category theory, a little bit more generalizations, but, but I'll just say measurable structures. So the only place where evolutionary theory says these have to be homomorphisms are measurable functions in measurable structures. Everything else, um, evolutionary theory is, is absolutely silent. It doesn't require them to be. So in that case, we have to then say, okay, unless somebody gives us another principle, in addition to the principles we already have in evolutionary theory, um, there's no reason for us to pick, hand pick the, the um, payoff functions that happen to be homomorphic to objective reality. You need, you need to argue for that. The burden of proof is on the person who wants to argue for that. So, so what we've done is said, okay, so let's look at the set of all, all payoff functions. You know, if, if there's, there's, say, a total order or uh, a topology or something like that, and, and, and ask what fraction of those are, in fact, homomorphisms of the structure of, of, of reality. If, if the payoff functions do not have information about the structure of reality, and you're being tuned to the payoff functions, you're not being tuned to the structure of reality. Right, it's just that simple. And so that turns out in case after case, um, the probability is zero. And it's no surprise, in, to be a homomorphism, you have to satisfy certain mathematical constraints. So you'd look at the set of all functions that, you know, from the base space to the, you know, from the, you know, the domain to the range. And when you say something's a homomorphism, it has to satisfy some mathematical constraint. Well, almost all functions are not gonna satisfy that in general. So it's, it's no big surprise um, that it's that they're not homomorphic. So now the the only way that people have tried to seem to try to get around this result of ours, because but because uh, we have the argument I just gave, and we've also done genetic algorithms where we just show that this actually works when you use genetic algorithms and so forth. So the only the ways that people have gotten around that is effectively to make the fitness functions almost irrelevant. So if you throw thousands or hundreds of thousands of random fitness payoff functions so fast at the organism that that in some sense it can't adapt to them, um, then then yeah it, it, they can't get tuned to the payoff functions. And in that case, you can you can show that the best you can do is uh, be tuned to reality. But typically, the, in that case, the 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 simulations that I've seen, they require that you um, take the world, whatever the objective world is, as one unbroken entity. You can't carve it up into objects. As soon as you allow yourself to carve the world into objects, then it turns out um, you'll you'll find that you can carve it. In fact, this is I think where object perception comes from. 
Um, objects are simply the, the way that the visual system and other um, sensory systems have evolved to capture fitness payoffs. So what we carve the world into, into objects as a way to capture action payoff um, correlations. So, so I've seen that. So what, what, what the, the strongest arguments that I've seen that people try to take this down is where, where the payoff functions are changing so quickly that in some sense they, they become irrelevant. But, but when you actually look at people who are, are, are not trying to take down our theory, they typically aren't looking at payoff functions changing that quickly. What you typically see is, well, well you know what? Um, when the payoffs change radically, species go extinct. That's what happens when payoffs change. Um, you, you don't evolve to see the truth. You just, you just die. And, and so, so it'll be fun though. I'm, I'm glad that people are, are, you know, taking this idea seriously and they're, they're running simulations and we're, you know, our, our team is planning some technical responses to this, but, but at top level, that's how I see the, the, the state of play. So that's how evolution by natural selection is telling us that the very predicates of our perceptions of space and time and physical objects almost surely are the wrong predicates to describe objective reality. Mm-hmm. And that matches up very nicely with what the physicists are finding. Space and time and the contents of space and time are simply the wrong predicates to describe objective reality. So what I'm saying is not merely that, you know, well, our, our, our senses are getting the colors a little bit wrong or the shapes a little bit off or the distances are off. I'm saying that it's not possible in the language of our sense of space and time and colors and so forth, it's not possible at all to frame a true description of objective reality, whatever objective reality might be. And when I say not possible at all, I'm saying, um, except with probability zero. So I, so I would bet against it really strongly. <laughs> <laughs> you have partially touched upon this, but I just want to stay with this concept of uh, natural selection and evolution. When you say that we have evolved in a manner that the real reality or underlying reality is hidden from us, my question is, why would evolution work like that? It seems that intentionally, if there is a bigger reality out there, that should be hidden from us. Right. The first thing I would say is that um, I'm just, with, with evolution by natural selection, all I'm doing is saying, here's what the theory is. These are the assumptions of the theory, and this is what that theory entails. So, so, so I, I'm, I'm proposing that any serious scientist who studies the theory of evolution will come to the same conclusion as I am. So, and I'm, I'm not saying, by the way, that I think that evolution by natural selection is the final theory, uh, or that modern physics gives the final theory. In fact, my own view is that there may not be a theory of everything for principled reasons that, that um, as I mentioned earlier, every scientific theory makes assumptions. It has to make assumptions at the very start and it explains everything in terms of those assumptions, but the assumptions are miracles for that theory. They're what you don't explain. And if you get a deeper theory that explains those assumptions, well, then it has its own. And so this is a never ending process. And so there is no theory of everything, and, and we, we should just acknowledge that. So as a scientist, all I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, I'm not studying evolution and modern physics because these are the final theories. I'm studying them because they're the best theories we have so far. And of course, we're trying to break them and get deeper theories. That's what any good scientist is trying to do. We try to break our theories 
And of course, we need some people to defend them. We need some people to defend them and some to break them. And that's how we make progress. So why now, just so now I'm just trying to argue as you, in your question, why would evolution by natural selection shape us not to see the truth? What, 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 what's going on there? So within its own context, I will answer it. I'm, so I'm not answering it from some God's eye point of view. I'm only answering it from within the framework of evolutionary theory, which we hope at some point to transcend. Within evolutionary theory, what matters for your survival and reproductive success is essentially getting more fitness payoffs than your rival. That's, think about it as playing a, a game, a video game, right? Uh, in a video game, right, if you're pl playing a competitive video game, what you have to do is, is get more points than your neighbor. If it's a, a killing game, you have to kill them and so forth before they kill you. Uh, and now, in the case of the video game, we know that in that model, the reality is not what you're seeing. You might be, you know, playing some guerrilla game where you're in a jungle and you're attacking people and hiding and so forth and, and using guns, whatever it might be. But what you're really doing is toggling voltages in some supercomputer somewhere. That's what you're really going doing in this in this metaphor. Now you could imagine someone who sees the truth. They they get to toggle the the millions or billions of voltages that have to be toggled per second to play the game. Okay, well, that's the reality. And uh, I can bet you that some guy with a simple user interface, the, the uh, little VR headset or whatever they might be wearing, um, or augmented reality kind of thing that they're using, will, will be toggling those voltages far more quickly than the guy that's actually having to see the reality. So in other words, seeing the truth can get in the way. If you had to write an email by toggling voltages, your friends would never hear from you. It'd just be too hard. So we create user interfaces that let us control reality, even though we're arbitrarily ignorant about the nature of reality. And that's what evolution has done. It only gives you the little controls that you need to manipulate reality but that you don't need to know reality. And since you don't, since knowing reality doesn't make you more fit, you don't know reality. This is that simple. <laughs> this nicely brings us to my next question that now let us dig deep in your description of this reality that we see around us. So I am looking at this computer and then through that computer, I'm looking at you. Here is a table. Here is a chair. What is uh, that I'm looking at uh, what is the nature of the deeper reality that be, that's beyond yeah. space time? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you a couple answers. One is what the physicists are doing, which is really quite interesting. And I, for those who, who want to see what really hardcore physicists are doing, I recommend um, looking up, you can Google Nima Arkani Hamed. His Harvard lectures from in 2019, the fall of 2019 at Harvard. He's got the whole semester of lectures on what they've discovered, uh, the structures. So there are things like amplitudehedron, cosmological polytopes. They're finding these amazing structures uh, uh, that, are, that do not have space-time. They don't have time, right? They don't, not just space, they don't have time. That's really quite interesting. They, they're they're non-unitary. So this is what we're, what they're getting is hopefully that not only space and time and, and relativity theory, but also quantum mechanics together will arise from some deeper structure. 
So, but so they're finding the mathematical structures. Some of the deepest are the amplitudehedron and the cosmological polytopes. So you can look at look at those. What they're about, they don't know. What they what, you know what this world is about. Why should it be that deeper reality has cosmological polytopes and amplitudehedron? They don't know. Right now, it's, it's just this is the math that works. It's deeper than space time, and it, it it gives much simpler answers than space time. But when you project it into space time, we get back the answers that we know and love in space time. So it's 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 empirically adequate. And so they're still at a point where they don't know what this world is about. Now, so that's the physicist. I myself have, since I'm interested in the problem of consciousness, um, and Physicalist approaches have failed so far to the hard problem. They, they've failed to explain, as I mentioned, even one specific conscious experience. Uh, and I think that consciousness, there is something real about consciousness. If I weren't conscious, I wouldn't be talking with you. <laughs> and there, in fact, nothing would be happening. I was, you know, of interest to me. Um, why not start with a theory in which consciousness is fundamental? Now, that idea is not new. Religious traditions and spiritual traditions have said that to us for thousands of years, but they've said it very imprecisely. There's not been a science of consciousness. It's been um, imprecise words. And of course, this is a very, very difficult problem. And we didn't even have the mathematical tools until very, very recently to even do this. So, so you know, science only got, you know, it's four or 500 years. I mean, Galileo roughly or a little bit before we started to have this kind of, of approach. And what science has really been doing is using those tools to study our headset, to study the, the user interface that, uh, that we've got. And it's been very useful to study that user interface. And we made the um, beginner's mistake of thinking that um, what we saw was the truth. It's, 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 it's a, a neophyte's mistake. But now our mathematics and our physics has gotten sophisticated enough that the physics comes back and slaps us in the face and says space-time is doomed. And so now that our own science is telling us space-time is doomed, that gives us permission to, okay, let's look beyond the normal predicates of space and time and objects. What else is there? And, and so I'll be the first to say that my theory that I'm about to propose is almost surely wrong. And if it's not wrong, it's only 1.0. And there will be 10.0, 100.0, and 1,000.0, um, and, and, and so forth. So this is just baby beginning 1.0. And, and by the way, I think that's for principled reasons. It's not just because I'm stupid. It's because science can never come up with a theory of everything. But there will always be a next step. So this is good job security. This is good. If you're thinking about a, a job with good security, science is it. Infinite job security. So, so the idea then is let's start with consciousness as being fundamental. And the cognitive neurosciences have done a lot of good work in the last few decades in getting empirical data and some interesting proto-theories about um, cognition and, and consciousness and, and so forth, emotions. And so they're, they're, we're not devoid of data. There are interesting things like split, split brain patients that really make you think carefully about consciousness and, and, and its relationship to the physical world. And so with some of my colleagues, and, and I should immediately give um, 
credit to a number of my colleagues, uh, including Chetan Prakash and Manish Singh, and some of my former students, um, Brian Marion and Justin Mark and and um, Kyle Stevens and Darren Peshek, and, and who've really done a lot of the heavy lifting. You know, as as a PhD advisor, you know, you get to have ideas, and then someone's got to do the heavy lifting. And so, so that. Uh, and, and some others, uh, Robert Prentner and, and Chris Fields. I mean, it's not, it's not just me. It's, it's the whole team. And without them, um, it, this, this would not be where it is. So what we've been doing is we've been saying, can we come up with a mathematical theory? This, this is now mostly Chetan, Prakash, Manish Singh, Chris Fields, Robert Prentner and me. Um, is there a mathematical model of consciousness? We want to keep it as simple as possible, as few assumptions as possible, but have it be provably um, universal in scope. And so we have a model. It's um, if people want to see the mathematics, um, if you Google my name, Donald Hoffman, and the name Objects of Consciousness. So Objects of Consciousness, Donald Hoffman, Chaitan Prakash. The paper is for free online. You, it'll go right to that, and you can read the paper with the mathematics. But the idea is, is very, very simple. We have this notion of a conscious agent, and the agent can have experiences. So it's got a repertoire of possible experiences. And based on those experiences, it can affect the experiences of other agents. That's it. That's the best. And we turn that into mathematics. But it, it's a, it's so it's a, it's a vast network. Uh, the mathematics is Markovian kernels. So each agent is modeled by a Markovian kernel. And the so one agent gets some experience. I get, you know, I see the color red, and that prompts me now to do something that changes the experiences of other agents. And that's what Markovian kernel does. And so this is this vast network of interacting conscious agents. It's it's provably computationally universal. Markovian kernels are trivially shown to be computationally universal. So anything that you can compute with the universal Turing machine, you can compute with a network of conscious agents. So it's it's trivial that any result that we have in cognitive neuroscience can be recast in, in terms of a network of conscious agents. So, so there's, there's no question that we can do that. The question is, you know, what, what new insights does this give us and, and so forth. So. Uh, but uh, how is it different or similar to, for instance, a neural network in our brain uh, where each cell is having an experience and then perhaps it emerges as, as a larger conscious experience? Right. So, so neurons are objects in space and time. They're physical objects. These conscious agents are outside of space and time completely. They're, they're not entities in space and time. They are abstract entities. And, and you might go, well, why in the world are you getting these abstract entities outside of space and time? Well, because our best science now tells us that space time isn't fundamental. That's why. Physics tells us that space-time is doomed, and evolution by natural selection tells us that the language of space-time is the wrong language to describe objective reality, and physical objects are the wrong language. That's, that's why I'm doing it. So I mean, we have to respect our best science. It doesn't mean that our best science is right, but it does mean that we have no better ideas right now. Our best ideas tell us, look outside of space and time. Okay, that's what I better do then. And on, on the other hand, if I'm letting go of space and time, what can I hold on to? Well, the only other thing, that, you know, probably this is poverty of Hoffman's imagination. You know, Hoffman has such low imagination, all he can think of is, well, if it's not space and time and objects, well, how about consciousness? And so that's why we're, why we're going and saying, okay, consciousness 
not inside space and time. Space and time instead is a data structure inside consciousness. So this is all a virtual reality. We have a space-time headset on. We are fundamentally consciousness, and we embody ourselves with a you know a VR headset of space-time as a way to interact with other conscious agents. <clears throat> and one thing that will that will be very interesting challenge that I'm looking forward to, to doing on this is as we look at this vast network of interacting conscious agents to show how space-time emerges. And, and what's, what's interesting is that the, the dynamics of conscious agents does not have to have any notion of entropic time, time in which entropy is increasing. With these Markovian dynamics of conscious agents, um, it's very easy to set up what's called a stationary Markovian dynamics, in which the entropy um, of state X1 equals, or I'll put it this way, the entropy of state Xn is equal to the state of entropy Xn minus 1 for all n. In other words, the entropy doesn't is, is universal. But if you do a projection of that dynamics of conscious agents, um, say by doing conditional probability, so H of Xn given X1, you can prove trivially that h of xn given x1 is greater than or equal to h of xn minus 1 given x1. It's trivial. So all of a sudden, when you take this dynamics of conscious agents, which is timeless in the sense of entropy time, and project it by, say, conditional probability, then you get entropic time. You get and so what I would what would be really beautiful is to show that we have this non-entropic dynamics of consciousness, but when you take any perspective on it, by conditional probability, for example, um, the agents that's seeing with that perspective all of a sudden is dealing with entropy. You're st now you're dealing with um, the entropic time, and now as a result of that, because entropy is increasing, now you need evolution of a natural selection to stay alive. Fitness is a problem now. And so, so maybe natural selection comes out as, as merely an artifact of, of taking a projection of a much deeper reality in which there is no entropy increase. That's the kind of thing that, that opens up when you take this deeper point of view. And we'll see. I mean, that, that, that's, it's pretty exciting. You, you, you have just mentioned that through these networks of conscious agents, you have created mathematical models. Have you successfully created a model of any conscious experience using these uh, mathematical structures? Well, so what's, what's interesting is that the primitives now are, are the experiences themselves, right? So every theory has primitives. So what we, what we have to do, though, is to show how these primitives are related to each other. So this is so-called the, the combination problem, um, both of conscious agents and of, of experiences. So, so we will have conscious experiences themselves as, as primitives, and we will have to have the, the rules about how um, mathematical relationships among these primitives leads to, to new primitives. So that's, that's one thing that we're working on. And I, I should point out a, a criticism here um, that, that, I've, that I've seen from, I won't mention the, the, the person's name, but a very intelligent physicist mm -hmm. um, who, who um, pointed out, okay, you know, Hoffman is saying that uh, natural selection means that our predicates of space and time aren't correct, 
but but and then he takes consciousness as fundamental. But but hey, our sensory experiences are also from natural selection, and so so those also can't be taken, you know, at face value. And 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 absolutely. So what I know, I absolutely agree. So what is fundamental is not any specific conscious experience or any forms of conscious experience. When you have when you write down what a a conscious agent is that can have experiences, you, you write down a probability space, right? So you, a probability space is, is some measurable space. Um, just to be very, very concrete, in case, you know, I don't want people to get left behind here. If, if my experiment is to flip a coin twice, and I want to look at the possible outcomes, the probability of various outcomes, well, there's, you know, it could be two heads, heads, tails, 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 or uh, tails, heads. Mm-hmm. There's four. So what you are always taught to do in your basic probability or measure theory class is to write down your probability space. Now, there it sits. You haven't done an experiment yet, so you don't have any particular outcome. But before you can have an outcome, there's this mathematical structure sitting there. In our theory of conscious agents, I view that mathematical structure as conscious awareness without any particular content. So the mathematics is saying the fundamental thing is conscious awareness without content. But that conscious awareness without content has um, uh, the potential for any kind of specific content. There's a whole play of content. So the base structure is timeless. The coming and going of experiences uh, allowed by that structure brings in this notion of, of at least a sequence time, and then maybe by projection an entropy time. So, so um, now a deep question comes up here, which is, how big is this space? Is there a space of all possible conscious experiences, for example? And. Uh, here, I think we start to get into interesting questions from like Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's there's there's no finite axiomatization of mathematics that captures all mathematical truths. So, and that's that's profound. It, what it, what it means is that the notion of truth is far deeper than the notion yeah. of proof. Yeah, it, it's not just a little. I mean, all. Girdle did was show one. He he shows one statement that goes beyond. But you as you see right away. Holy mm-hmm. smoke! Once you've got one, the cat's out of the bag. Mm-hmm. What we what any system can do, even though it can do you know maybe an infinite number of truths, it still measures zero compared to what's uh, what's out there. So that's another reason why I think science will never have theories of everything because of Girdle's incompleteness theorem. Every scientific theory will have a finite set of axioms, the assumptions, and the derivation rules for what it can explain. Well, as soon as your scientific theory is um, sophisticated enough to model arithmetic, you're in Gödel's land, and he's going to show you that there are truths that you can't prove. And so, so as soon as you get scientific theories that are that sophisticated, you know that they're scratching the surface. And so this is a very humbling, from, from my point of view, very, very humbling. There's infinite job security in science, but we will always just be scratching the surface. The, the, 
the truth in the universe is beyond computation. It's beyond theory. And yet, in a way that we need to understand, that we, that we really, there is this very important and non-trivial relationship between the reality and the truth and the projections of it that we can get through through our model. And so this is these are deep issues that science is going to have to really grapple with. So my own take is that Gödel's incompleteness theorem provides a logic for the dynamics of consciousness in the following sense. If consciousness is fundamental, then the only thing to explore is consciousness itself. Hmm. That's what it is. And so you have this self-reference kind of issue, consciousness exploring consciousness. And I think that there's going to be a, a girdling completeness kind of thing going on here where in which consciousness um, in principle is, this is job security for consciousness. It, in principle, it, it can never know itself fully. So it will always be exploring. And so what consciousness is up to, I call this sometimes girdles candy store, I mean, there's an infinite variety of, of conscious experiences and consciousness is exploring them and us being here, you know, Hoffman embodied in this space-time interface is just consciousness projecting itself into one, one projection world to explore one aspect of the possibility of consciousness and to recognize that as, as interesting as this space-time world is and all that's going on here, uh, I'm, consciousness is more than that. This, this, is, this is, I mean, I might get identified and trapped in this and my whole ego might get tied up in this. But then consciousness has to wake up and realize, okay, that was really interesting. I learned a lot, and I learned I'm not just that. Okay, now on to the next world. And so we just put on new virtual worlds. Consciousness is trying on new virtual worlds over and over and over again, maybe letting itself get absorbed, falling asleep, identifying itself with something in that world, waking up and going, okay, I learned something deeper about myself. I'm not that. I'm more than that. And so that would be this – so Gödel's incompleteness theorem may be – the fundamental reason why consciousness is in, in some sense forever exploring itself. And that's what it's about. And, and the question of whether the new conscious experiences are being just discovered or invented is really an interesting question in this case, because in some sense, they, they might be the same thing now. You're, you're, the invention and the discovery is the same thing. Your analogy that you usually use that the reality around us is as if it's an interface and uh, as we use our computers and there are icons. Now, my question is that in that analogy, so if I apply this to myself now, uh, so this these all objects around me, so they are perhaps icons. But my question is that do you distinguish between living items and non-living, uh, I should say, entities or non-living entities. So everything around me is an icon. So it means that you are an icon for me now and I am an icon for you. So so how does this bit work? Very, very good. So, so the idea is that <clears throat> on the assumption that fundamental reality or this is this network of conscious agents, <clears throat> then, and, and by the way, it, it's a theorem of this theory that when you have agents interacting, they form a single agent as well. The mathematics just tells you that. And so there's also one agent. <laughs> so this is one agent exploring itself, but it, it can also be 
um, analyzed as, as countless agents interacting and, and, and so forth. So here I am, I'm, I'm one agent, but maybe uh, you, I can think of myself as a projection of this one agent into a small user interface that then looking at these other agents interacting. In that case, um, the distinction that we make between living and non-living is not fundamental. It's an artifact of the limitations of our interface, right? If all that I'm interacting with are conscious agents, anytime I have an icon on my interface in space and time, it's because I'm interacting with conscious agents. Now, when I'm interacting with you, my icon is giving me a lot of information, fallible, but I can tell if you're interested or not. I can, I can tell if you're excited, lots of things. With When I interact with a cat, um, I get some idea about the consciousness and, and my cat likes tuna, doesn't like chicken. So, you know, I, 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 I get that. When I interact with an ant, um, the consciousness is much less clear. When I interact with the bacteria, much less clear. When I get down to something that I call a rock or you know, like an atom of carbon, at that point I'm saying um, my, my interface is so uninformative about consciousness that I then make the rookie mistake of saying I'm, I must be interacting with something that's not conscious. No, my interface just gave up. Of course an interface has to give up. And so it's going to give us less and less information. That's what interfaces do. They give us a lot of information about certain things, less information about others. It's a rookie mistake to take the limitations of our interface as an insight into the nature of the reality. That's a rookie mistake. And so, but that's what we do as physicalists. We make that rookie mistake. We say that, of course, you know, electrons are not conscious, unless you're what's called a panpsychist. There are some people, it's sort of a desperate move, um, panpsychism to, to say, okay, well, you know, we, we can't solve the hard problems. So maybe at least in some versions of panpsychism, there are many. It's an interesting topic. And I have really brilliant friends who are, are panpsychists. I mean, so <clears throat> um, they say, well, you know, electron might have a unit of consciousness. When an electron and a proton get together, their units of consciousness somehow might make the unified consciousness of a hydrogen atom or something like that. Um, so, and my attitude is um, we shouldn't be thinking about consciousness that way. It shouldn't be tied to little elements inside of our interface like electrons and protons. <clears throat> what, what, what is an electron? A physicist will tell you that they'll say technically an electron is merely an, irre uh, an irreducible representation of the Poincaré group of space-time. In other words, given that you're taking space-time as your fundamental framework, then electrons fall out as just the symmetries of that space-time. They're not something special. They're, they're just, I mean, they fall out because you chose that as your, as your data structure. So, but we shouldn't, the, the space-time is just a data structure to, as a way, an interface to interacting with the external reality, I, I propose in conscious agent. There's no reason to take little elements of that data structure, like the electrons, as, as, as fundamental reality. They're, they're literally just data structures that you're employing. They're not fundamental reality. And the only point of these data structures is to point, literally, to um, aspects of reality. The electron doesn't point very well to consciousness, but you know the interface had to give up at some point. That's what interfaces do. 
My next question was about panpsychism, uh, but you have uh, already touched upon that. Uh, but th- there, there are many people who ascribe to this uh, th- th- this concept, and and and. and- there are many flavors of uh, panpsychism or similar uh, thinking uh, that that conscience is everywhere. It's fundamental in the universe. So does your theory point out that there is a higher level consciousness or the consciousness is connected? Uh, so so how, how do you see these things? Well, there's um, not in a space-time universe, right? So... So the idea that consciousness is everywhere inside the space-time universe is is just a category mistake from from my, from my point of view because space, the space-time universe is is not the universe it's 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 a trivial data structure it's a simplifying data structure and and putting consciousness inside that is getting things backwards the data structure is a model inside consciousness not vice versa right so that's that's the thing Think about it in terms of virtual reality or the metaverse, right? When you put on a headset and you find yourself immersed in a 3D virtual world, that virtual world is actually inside your consciousness. You're not inside the virtual world. Now, you can lose yourself in that virtual world and feel yourself embodied in it and and feel like you're inside the virtual world. But in fact, the virtual world is inside your head. Right. And if you take your headset off or if you just think about it and you sort of wake up, go, oh, yeah, you know, I lost myself for a while. I got so engaged in the game. You know, I was playing virtual volleyball. I got so involved in in the virtual volleyball game that I forgot. I thought I was inside that world. But in fact, that world is inside me. It's just a data structure inside me. And so that's the that's the switch. And I think that the. So that's that's one place where I sort of disagree with the panpsychist thing. There's this fundamental I would take it as a category error in which they're they're trying to take space-time seriously as somehow fundamental and getting consciousness seriously as fundamental too. And some and and you, I think you have to go and, and just listen to our best science. Space-time is doomed. It's not fundamental. Don't cram consciousness inside space-time. Don't cram it into electrons. Don't even cram it into this icon. This is just an icon. There's no consciousness inside this icon. The icon's in your head. It's in your consciousness, and you're using that icon as a way of interacting with another consciousness that's not in, that's that's but it's not inside space and time. So that's that's the fundamental reason why I, I sort of disagree with Pan. So I, I I agree with what they're trying to do. They're trying to get consciousness as fundamental, but I think you have to really cut the cord with space time completely, and put space time completely inside as a data structure employed by consciousness before you get things right. And so that's that's where I sort of disagreed with my, my good friends and brilliant you know colleagues who are, are doing um, the work on, on panpsychism. So, so my attitude is, as we start to move into the metaverse, as humanity spends more and more time in the metaverse, and we're, we're now seeing that happening, um, I think 20, 30 years from now, an intelligent 20-year-old will look back on us and go, why didn't they get it? Why couldn't they understand that space-time was just a headset? It's just so when, when you spend several hours a day in the metaverse doing your work, going to you know movies in the metaverse, going to concerts, hanging out with your friends in the metaverse, it's going to be a no-brainer that space-time is just a headset. It'll, it'll be just sort of obvious. You, you take off this one, one headset, you're out of the metaverse, and it's just obvious. Well, what about this? Space-time. It's another headset. So then 
what you are saying is that we are in a simulation. Is 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 that correct uh, way to describe what you say? Well, when people typically talk about simulation, like Nick Bostrom and and others, and and um, Joshua Bach and so forth, um, they're assuming a physical reality, and typically a computational system within that physical reality. So I disagree on, on both points. I mean, I disagree that the fundamental reality is a, a physical space-time reality, and, and so does physics. Space-time is doomed. The physicists are telling us space-time is doomed. Cognitive neuroscientists and people studying consciousness need to wake up. The physicists have told us that's not the way to go. So we need to, to wake up. Space-time is doomed. So, so computational systems inside space and time is just the wrong framework. Space-time is the wrong framework and computational systems, and therefore, a fortiori, computational systems inside space-time are not the right way to go. So, so, so I differ from simulation theory. Where, where it's superficially similar is the idea that this is a headset. But it's, it's, for them, the headset is because there's a deeper space-time, a, a deeper physical world in which some programmer has programmed us with our own little space-time and so forth. So, so and they then saw, they have the hard problem of consciousness. If you start there, you've, you've got to solve the same old hard problem of consciousness that we started with in our discussion today, which is if you're going to start with um, physical objects in space and time, and that's the starting point of your theory, then you, and you want to, and you claim that there is consciousness, conscious experiences, and there is the ex- experience like the taste of chocolate, then you have to explain from your particles or your neural activity exactly which of those dynamics must be the taste of chocolate and could not be the taste of vanilla and why. And that's the hard problem of consciousness that Leibniz told us more than 300 years ago we couldn't solve, and so far he's been proven right. I mean, you, you, that's just, it's, it's, it's not possible to do it that way. So, so the simulation theory superficially sounds like what I'm doing, but you can see that the, the fundamental assumptions are uh, diametrically opposed. Do you think then there is uh, uh, something that is creating this consciousness, or do you think that there is a larger structure beyond this space-time, even if it is not physical, because we cannot comprehend this, perhaps we cannot describe that? You have briefly touched upon that, but in other words, uh, what is beyond uh, this this physical uh, reality? So, as I said, I take my theory as a 1.0 theory. It is it, probably wrong, but if it's not wrong, in, in the sense that it's a good starting point, then it's just 1.0. It's not, I'm not claiming it's right in the sense that it's the final theory, by no means. I've already said there is no final theory and that it, it includes any Hoffman theory is, is not the final theory. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it's, it's, it's just trivially wrong, and someone in five years will show why it's trivially wrong. But within the framework that I'm thinking about, consciousness is the fundamental reality. Now, consciousness is just a word, right? And the best mathematics that I have right now is writing down this probability space for the Markovian kernels. And the interpretation that I give for the base probability space is consciousness without content. And I've identified that with the realm of potential truths that are beyond any computational 
system, right? Any finite system. So I'm, I'm positing a, that what Gödel said, that the notion of truth will forever ex escape explanation, right? That's what I, that's what I would interpret it. I'm positing a, that, I'm putting that mystery in consciousness without content. So, so to put, but why would I put it there? And why would I go that direction? We have conscious experiences. I, I see colors, I hear sounds, and I have to ask myself, okay, there's the color I experience, but what is it that is allowing the color experience to happen? What is allowing me to have thoughts? There are the thoughts that I think, but there, but it's so. Here's where some spiritual traditions have had you know an idea a long time before, right? So the Upanishads said, they they say not that which the eye sees, but that whereby the eye can see. Know that to be Brahma, the Eternal, and not what people here adore. Not that which the ear hears, but that whereby the ear can hear. Know that to be Brahma, the Eternal, and so forth. So this is sort of lining up um, and they all say not that which, which the mind thinks but that whereby the mind can think when you ask what is this capacity right we have all these experiences all these perceptions all these thoughts what can we say about that capacity now in my field of course they would say oh, of course i mean in cognitive neuroscience we're working on the capacity we show how neural activity causes your conscious experiences yeah. and causes your thoughts and so forth well that's assuming that space-time is fundamental. And neural activity uh, within space-time is the, is the source of our experiences and our thoughts. But that's not true. The neurons in space-time are an interface description of something that's going on beyond space-time that the physicists themselves don't know what it is and that I'm speculating as consciousness. But, it's, but whatever it is, neurons themselves do not exist when they're not perceived. They are icons in our headset, and they exist when you see them, and they cease to exist when you don't see them. Space-time itself only exists as a data structure. So neurons, so, so my, and, and by the way, again, these are all my good buddies and friends and, and colleagues in cognitive neurosciences. We're, we're all struggling to understand what's going on. This is very, very deep. Our best models are neural networks that, that explain how thinking arises and conscious experiences of color and shape and sound and so forth. But what I'm saying is when you let go of space-time, then you have to, then, by the way, that's good for neuroscience. It means that um, there's a lot of work for neuroscience because we have to not just take neural activity at face value. We have to ask, what does that neural activity mean in this deeper theory beyond space-time? So this is really good news for, for neuroscientists. There's lots, lots of job security here. We have to reverse engineer neural activity to whatever the dynamics outside of space-time is and then see how it projects back in to give us the neural activity. So there's lots of good work to be done here. So this is, by the way, it's not nihilistic against any of the work that we're doing. All of the work that's been done in space-time, all the good work of my cognitive science colleagues and cognitive neuroscience colleagues, all the good work inside physics of space-time, none of that's wasted. All of it is a boundary constraint on any deeper theory. Any deeper theory when you project it back into space-time, better give us our current theories inside space-time or generalizations of those theories, or your deeper theory is just plain wrong. 
So, so all the work we're doing is not for, for, you know, for no good purpose. It's, it's valuable. It, it constrains. And when you look at the work of Nima and Juan Maldacena and these guys that are going beyond space-time, they're very, very clever. They're using all the structures inside space-time to make really intelligent guesses about the structures behind space-time. So the work inside space-time, it doesn't dictate what you're going to find outside space-time. But for an open and smart mind, it gives you hints that, that you can then make the right creative leaps, where, where those creative leaps are then constrained by whatever I leapt to, I need to be able to make it rigorous and then project back into space-time and get back quantum field theory, for example, and, 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 and so forth. Imagine that I, 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 I'm a scientist or I'm a researcher, a respiring researcher, I should say, and I want to understand uh, consciousness and uh, I have a blank slate. I want to develop new theories. I want to develop new ideas. And I ask you, what are the things I should just drop? Which direction I should look? You just mentioned this uh, a couple of moments ago that there are certain constraints that are kind of stopping us because we are just looking in this direction and not in that direction. How would you guide that person? Well, uh, I would not guide them away from all the work that's been done in space-time. Mm -hmm. To the contrary, I would say that depending on your talents, jump in and learn the physics or jump in and learn the neuroscience or or the cognitive science, whatever, wherever your talents lead you. And then don't take the results as the final word and don't take space-time as the final word. Always be looking over your shoulder for, okay, this is the best we have so far. What is a theory, if you want to look at a theory of consciousness beyond space-time, for example, then, then you, can, you can look at my stuff, not because it's the, the final word, but Hey, it's 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 rigorous and it's it's um, pretty simple. It's a 1.0 theory, so you can use that as a you know to try to shoot it down and go come on with your next theory. That of course, I expect 100 years from now my theory will be be laughed at. I mean that's just the way science is. Mm -hmm. So so learn the the best current theories. Let go of the physicalism. In other words, if you're a physicist, of course, learn quantum field theory. Learn. The Poincaré group, learn all the all the stuff, you know. But then do what, what Nima and Arkani Hamed and Juan Maldacena and others are doing. Now be adventurous. Start to go beyond space-time. For your cognitive neuroscientist, learn the neuroscience and now be adventurous. What what model of dynamics beyond space-time could you come up with when you project it into space-time will give you back what we call neural activity? That's so this is this is um a very difficult and fun project, but you can see we've been working inside space-time for several hundred years, and we thought that that was hard. This is going to be much harder because now we're having to work outside of space-time, but project back into space-time to get our our um, testable results. Artificial intelligence. So we are building these machines. We are writing these mathematical algorithms, and where we are making machines to to do intelligent stuff. But that's not consciousness. Will we be able to create some sort of synthetic consciousness? Like what we can experience as subjective experience. Can machines do this? So that question is typically understood in a framework in which space-time is fundamental. Particles, elementary particles are fundamental. And, um, you know, 
we assume that physical systems like brains can create consciousness, carbon-based consciousness. And so from that point of view, why shouldn't a silicon-based machine be able to create consciousness? So that's the standard article. It's t- uh, argument is that if one kind of machine, namely a carbon-based neural machine, can create consciousness, then there seems no principal reason why uh, some other kind of hardware inside space-time couldn't do that. Um, and I agree, if you could solve the hard problem for consciousness with, neur- with neural systems, then I, I would agree that you could do it for silicon base. But we haven't solved it for neural systems, right? And, and physics is giving us the re- reason to believe that that's principled. Space-time isn't fundamental, so it's no surprise that we can't solve the hard problem of consciousness from within space-time. It's not the fundamental realm. And reductionism is dead. Gravity makes reductionism dead. So all of the tools that we thought were the right tools are the wrong tools. So how do I think about artificial intelligence and consciousness then? I was actually in the artificial intelligence lab at MIT for, for my doctorate, as well as the brain and cognitive science department. And in my PhD, was, I, I titled it computational psychology. You know, I've been very interested in AI and computation and its relationship to psychology from, from the get-go. But now I realize that computation is, is, is not enough and uh, space-time itself, in, in fact, isn't fundamental. So how do I think of – so the way I think about it is this way. When I interact with a person, I'm interacting with something that I describe as in terms of biology and neural systems and synapses and so forth. That's just my description. It's a an icon in my interface. So Hoffman is an icon in your interface, and Dr. Oktar is an icon in my interface. But that's just my icon. It's not it's not your consciousness, it's my icon. So but my icon in my interface provides a portal to interact with your consciousness. And that's the interesting thing. There is, uh, I am affecting your consciousness and you are affecting my consciousness. The questions in your mind come through your mouth into my interface representation of you. They affect my consciousness and, and hopefully my responses are germane to what was in your consciousness. So my consciousness gets synced with your consciousness um, through icons in our interface. The icons are not conscious. Icons are just icons. But some icons are portals. And those portals, in the case of humans, they're the best portals that we have. With my icon of a cat, it's a fair portal. My icon of an ant, it's pretty poor portal. When I get down to an amoeba, it's a really terrible portal if I want to understand the consciousness. I mean, maybe with hard work, I could guess what consciousness I'm interacting with. But so, so I now change the question about artificial intelligence, right? The standard question is space-time and particles are fundamental. So what complicated arrangement of these unconscious particles and their dynamics will finally make the magic of consciousness happen. That's the way you think about it in that framework. Start with unconscious particles, and somehow when they get the right kind of complexity in their dynamics, consciousness emerges. Lots of hand waves are needed. The, this, in this framework, it's a fundamentally different question. Particles in space-time and, and objects in space-time are all icons in my consciousness. 
They're in my head. Some of them are portals. So the question is, if I understand my interface well enough, could I develop tools that would allow me to play with my interface in a way that opens up new portals into the realm of consciousness? See, it's a completely different question. And I think the answer is yes. I mean, we have certain technology, like having kids. When you have kids, you open up new portals into consciousness, right? So, so it's a very low-tech way. So we know that the technology exists to open up portals. Can we do it in a more sophisticated way? I think yes. And could the technology look like silicon circuits and software? Perhaps. In which case, maybe we would have AIs that are conscious in the same way that my icon of you is, is conscious, right? The icon is not literally conscious. It's just a portal into your consciousness. So the AI would not literally be conscious. It, it would be a new icon that we've created um, that allows us a portal into to consciousness. So for what it's worth, I think that that's possible and, in fact, would be one of the crowning achievements of this new kind of framework. We would be, it would show us that we're on a good track, um, not on the track of a theory of everything because there is no theory of everything. And my guess about where that mystery, the, the fundamental mystery is, is in consciousness without content. The, the fundamental awareness, my guess is that somehow there is an infinite intelligence. But that's not separate from you and me, which, which is really interesting. If this framework is right, I'm not separate from that intelligence, but my addiction to my thought stream does separate me from that intelligence because Gödel tells us that that thought stream is based on a finite set of con conceptual units that I've got. And so my concepts, as long as uh, there's going to be this really interesting interplay between this deep intelligence, which is unbounded, and the finite intelligence, which is powerful, that we call human thought, which is the foundation of science. But I think the real scientists, when you look at them, they go back and forth between this deeper fundamental intelligence that's non-conceptual to get their ideas. And then they bring them back into the realm where we have things that we can write down in scientific theories. And so, so there is hope here in the sense that I'm not proposing... I'm proposing that science can never have a theory of everything. And so we can never know the final truth through science. But we can know the truth by being the truth. We're not, from this framework, we're not divorced from that intelligence. And when we let go of our conceptual systems, we can open up to the intelligence that's really deeply the core of who we are. And then go back project back into this space-time interface with the conceptual systems that are available to the icon of our brain. In our, and so that's, that's sort of how I see the big picture, but we'll see how it fleshes out. What you have said in past three minutes, it, it requires another three hours discussion. <laughs> yeah, right. I am getting the hints of something that we hear in the realm of spiritualities, that infinite intelligence and we are connected to that intelligence is that something related to that or it's something different that you are saying or well i think that they're i think that they will be 
found to be related, but in an interesting way. That right, <clears throat> the Upanishads that I quoted were thousands of years old. So these ideas have been around for thousands of years, but they've not been said precisely. Now, one can argue that that's because they can't be said precisely, right? Nevertheless, there is some very interesting relationship between words and concepts that we use as pointers to the truth and the truth itself. And, and even the, in these mystical scriptures, they will say that certain pointers are better than other pointers. And um, as scientists, we also think that certain theories are, are, are better than other theories. So this relationship between the deep intelligence and the sort of conceptual intelligences that are projections of it is something that we'll want to understand. And that notion of projection may end up being critical here. Um, so, I, so, so I think the, my attitude about this would be, um, I think that the spiritual traditions have been on to something for thousands of years, but they haven't had the tools, the, the conceptual tools to, they've had cer certain practice tools. So they've been able to be the truth for perhaps, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not a master at, at meditation and so forth. And so I have to take them at their word, those who, who have. They seem to be able to step out of the conceptual system completely and into a realm where they're just this, this deeper non-conceptual truth. Um, and, and I have no reason to disbelieve people like, like Eckhart Tolle, for example, who, who seems to be saying that that's, that's where he spends his time. I, 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 I don't have to be charitable to think that he might be telling the truth. I, I think it's quite plausible. And, and it does line up with my take on Gödel's incompleteness theorem, that there is this notion of truth that, that transcends any um, computational system. So, so my guess then is that as science moves forward, this antipathy between science and spirituality, um, which came in part because of the treatment of the Church of Galileo, with mm. Galileo and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but also in part because, you know, from the scientist's point of view, many of the spiritual claims aren't, aren't substantiated and not substantiated, and, and some have not cared whether they could be substantiated or not. So there's been, there's been problems on both sides. But I think the way forward is interesting. I think that the insights from the spiritual traditions, like about an intelligence that goes beyond concepts, seems to line up with what Gödel's incompleteness theorem is telling us. And it also lines up with what physics is telling us, that space-time isn't fundamental. Can we start to have a respectful dialogue where both sides are going to have to give up deeply cherished that's part of the whole thing right so already our science is telling us to let go of space time that's huge that is it's just massive i mean science has been about what's inside space time now we're looking for something beyond space time the spiritual traditions have been there already, but they haven't had the tools to say anything rigorous about it. But they've had this important notion of pointers, that some pointers to this deeper reality are better than other pointers. We really need to sharpen that idea. Can we, in science, full well understanding that there's never going to be a theory of everything, can we still have better and more helpful theories that give us, in some sense, better insight into this deeper intelligence, which may, in fact, be ourselves? 
So this, if this, if that's the case, then this is really, can we use the tools of science to give us better tools for self-understanding? Professor Donald Hoffman, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. It was very kind of you to invite me, Dr. Akhtar. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>